Good evening. Good evening and welcome to our ghost tour of Waterford Village. My name is Edward and I shall be your guide for this evening. Tonight we will be discussing Waterford's history, as well as its unsettling folklore and ghost tales, which I can rightly assume is why many of you have decided to join us for tonight. That being said, if this is your first time, thank you for joining us. If you are returning guests, it's a pleasure to see you again. However, whether this is your first time or your 29th, please prepare yourself for tonight's tour and stories. And, as always, relax and enjoy. Now, if you will turn on your lanterns, for the streets get very dark at this time of night, we can proceed. Alrighty now? Alright, excellent. Let's now begin. Originally, the land on which Waterford was founded was controlled by the Spanish, though they didn't seem to hold much interest in it. Later, after an uneasy truce with the English that granted 5,000 acres of land to the English crown, it became evident as to why their lack of interest led them to hand it over so easily. The ground was too solid for planting, had little to no natural resources. The British crown, hoping to sidestep this embarrassment, grew determined to settle their new territory and to expand their colonial footprint in the New World. Interest in the new colony was non-existent, to say the least, and the English crown had trouble finding investors. Eventually, a young Thomas Evan Huntington volunteered to head up the enterprise. Thomas was technically a noble, but hailed from one of the poorest aristocratic families in England. He believed that his involvement would lead to his acceptance at court, leading to more financial gain. This was ultimately not the case. The logistical costs of the colony broke him, and he would later be buried in an unmarked grave five years later. Some say his sorrow at the failure still looms like a cloud over the village. Perhaps it does in a way. But before anything could begin, Thomas would need to find people to live and work on the new lands. For this, he turned to the poorhouses and the municipal courts and heavily recruited those who were fighting off being imprisoned for debt and those looking to shorten their prison sentences. Evidently, the recruits were promised an acre of fertile land on which to settle and an annual stipend of £10 the first three years to help them get started. When enough volunteers had been enlisted, a formal charter was written up. Ships and supplies gathered. In the early spring of 1703, they set off for the new home. It did not, however, take long before the new colonizers realized that they had been duped. One anonymous resident would later write back to England that the lands we had been promised and seek appear to have been fabricated, that the streams and rains do not penetrate the earth and are so shallow that a child could easily ford them on their toes. This, we believe, was the origin of the village's name. This sort of tongue-in-cheek way of naming things would permeate throughout the village's history, as we shall see later at the end of the tour. Six months after its founding, the appointed governing board had collapsed, with two of the six dying of an unknown disease and one vanishing into the wilds of the forest, never to be seen again. The governor would sail back to England, promising to voice their complaints and demand supplies. He would never return to the colony. In fact, no governing representatives would ever be sent back to Waterford. They were, in effect, isolated from their own native country. Why these early colonists chose to stay in the village after being abandoned and not strike out for greener pastures or seek to be absorbed in the local native communities, such as is speculated by their residents that Roanoke had done, is rather unknown. However, there is evidence that by 1709, a forge had been established and textiles were being produced. 
It is believed they had interacted with the Spanish settlement located 20 miles to the south, and thus were supplying them with glass and metal goods in exchange for food. The village prospered. By 1770, the village had doubled in size, establishing a large church in the county's first schoolhouse, whose foundations lay beneath the parking lot near to where our tour began. In 1776, independence is declared and war with England ensues. Late one afternoon in 1778, a young woman receives a letter, and our first story begins at this corner emerging in court. Marianne Worth and Henry Archer had been engaged in the spring of 1777, after two years of courtship, and had planned to be married the following year. But as the war intensified, Waterford found itself no longer in its outskirts. Henry felt an obligation to enlist, as the scars of the English abandonment still ran deep generations later. Mary and Henry would write each other often, and most of their letters survive. Henry had grown tired of fighting and was homesick. Mary wished for a safe return. In Henry's last letter, the one Mary would receive that late afternoon in 1778, he wrote of his desire to leave his charge and return to her. He wrote his company would be marching south the following month, that during the night as they drew close to the village, he would slip out and meet her at the corner of Merchant and Corp, the place they first met, and where we now stand on our tour. He even gave the date he would be there, March 13th. The month passed, and on the designated night, Mary packed a small case and waited at the corner all night. Harry, however, never showed. For a year, Mary would wait for him each night at the corner, all the way up to their planned wedding day. And each night, Henry never appeared. In fact, no one had ever heard from him at all. Crushed, Mary no longer made her way to the corner. Years passed, and Mary found herself in courtship with another gentleman. They would be married and move away from the village. What Mary never knew was that Henry had been killed in an ambush hours before he was set to leave and set home. A letter was written detailing his death, but the courier turned out to be a spy and the letter was ultimately destroyed. Where Henry was finally laid to rest is unknown. However, decades later, a soldier resembling Henry was seen around sunset at the corner of Merchant and Court, asking everyone who passed by where Mary was. No one knew who he spoke of and before anyone could help him, he had vanished, appearing again a year later. And ever since that night, witnesses have reported seeing Henry at this corner around sunset, seeking any type of answer as to where his Mary is, before fading away. Perhaps if you find yourself at this corner at sunset, and you happen to run into Henry, maybe you can supply him with a decent answer. And now, if you please follow me, we can proceed to our next point of interest. The post-Revolutionary War years were good for Waterford. It was a time of new beginnings, a renaissance, if you will. New philosophies took hold, and Noah Webster suggested updated spellings of certain words to separate us from the English. Some cut on, others did not. New forms of storytelling emerged and crept its way through the newly formed states. And by the middle of the 19th century, both Transcendentalism and Spiritualism began to take root. All these new ideas trickled down into Waterford, and the town leaders took them to heart. Large gardens were established, and the arts, almost virtually unknown beforehand, was encouraged. So much so, in fact, that Waterford's first theater opened in 1841, and was known as The Round, in keeping with some of their beliefs. Small but popular plays were performed. 
The plays, they said, were meant to be seen with the eyes closed. Another jest, perhaps, in keeping with the town's humor, or just a succinct way of describing the emotional experience of the plays being presented. When not performing, the actors would frequent the local tavern, the sharp-toothed flamingo. It is this tavern that now stands before us, and where our second story takes place, and where patrons have experienced drinks that are delicious with the perfect amount of sweetness. The summer of 1843 was dry and harsh. The drought was so bad, in fact, that many farmers were forced to move their entire collection of livestock to wetter parts, though these still were few and far between. Those who stayed in town did their best to conserve as much water as possible, and ice deliveries had been stopped. You can imagine how rough it would be to try to cool off with a warm drink in the afternoon. One night after a performance at the round, while a visiting troupe unwound after the show with a few of the spectators, a younger member of the cast barreled through the tavern doors, complaining the heat demanded a drink. When it was served to him, the young man grew loud, saying he wanted a cold drink. There was none to be had, he was informed. The young man continued to grow belligerent, informing everyone of his wealth and once again insisting he be served a cold drink. After once again rejecting what he was being told and threatening to close the place down, the proprietor of the tavern decided to get involved. Telling the actor he had been misinformed, the owner told the actor that if he would be so kind as to show some patience for a few minutes, the propriety promised to return with a cold drink. The man agreed and watched the owner leave the tavern. The owner, on the other hand, proceeded to the only place he knew a slab of ice had been delivered, the town morgue. Due to the hour, the tavern owner had to break into the morgue, where he did find the ice, resting beneath the body, having been stripped naked and left to drain on the ice. Apparently, without a second thought, the tavern owner began chipping away at the slab of ice, saturated in body fluids, and broke off two large chunks then returning to the tavern to serve the young actor his cold drink. The actor loved the drink instantly, saying it was delicious, with the right amount of sweetness. The other patrons, witnessing the display of gratitude, as well as the drink being served, also demanded they too order what the actor had been given. The owner agreed, for what else was he going to do with the ice? Nor did anyone ask where he had obtained it. The special drink became popular, and he served it for years. Sadly, the drink has been lost to us, for clearly it would be unethical to try to recreate it. However, you might walk in one day and be given a cold drink with your meal that is delicious with the right amount of sweetness. Perhaps the old owner has returned to prepare more of his popular drink. Now, if you all follow me as we head right around the corner for our third stop on the tour. We are now standing in front of the Baker House, probably the most well-known building in the village. Built in 1791, this colonial two-story house has a long history of odd and paranormal occurrences. Its original owner, Joseph R. Baker, was the most prominent member in town. In fact, almost 50% of the community looked to him as landlord and banker. He would personally oversee the expansion of the town in the years after the war. The town would later reward Joseph by electing him mayor in 1800. The same year, he would marry his bride, Margaret Clark. Happiness didn't last long, however. Joseph would lose his wife to childbirth two years later. Understandably, he was devastated. The once social Joseph now never left the house. For years, the only appearances he made was walking in front of a window from time to time. Tragically, he would be found dead three years later by a caretaker hired to look in on him. 
The assumption had been his death was suicide, but according to their records that have survived, there seems little indication that assumption is accurate. Be that as it may, the town would be empty for the next ten years, when the town would finally claim ownership of the property. The house would act as several things throughout the next few decades, from an orphanage, to a poor house, to a hospital, then finally a hospice of sorts before finally returning to private ownerships in the 1860s. Guests, residents, and staff of the house during these years would report odd noises, objects moving on their own and cold breezes moving up and down the stairs. At times voices were heard, or even a child crying. Later, future residents of the house would report much the same, adding that some of the noises came beneath the floorboards. Recently, these new stories may possibly be linked to the folklore of the tragic tale of Hannah Murphy and her son, Francis. In 1862, the house was bought by Patrick Murphy and his wife, Hannah, and the town sold it to raise funds for the displaced during the Civil War. While slavery did not exist in Waterford, their textile plants, as well as their clothing and goods stores, certainly benefited from the use of slave labor that was in use by the surrounding towns and rural plantations. And much like many towns, the outbreak of the Civil War tore Waterford in half. Paranoia ran deep on both sides, for as territories shifted almost daily, each opposing half feared the outcome, which only intensified as the war raged on. As the story goes, Patrick and Henry and their little boy, Francis, quickly became a part of the community, attending dances and even hosting several seances for town folk looking to communicate their relatives lost the war. For all intents and purposes, the Murphys were stable and seemed to have very few worries. But deep down, Patrick feared for the safety of his family, and soon he developed his own paranoia. In late 1864, rumors began to swirl that rogue soldiers, desperate for supplies, had overrun small towns and held the residents hostage. Patrick had become obsessed with these rumors and scoured any newspaper he could to get a hold of looking for stories. When none to be found, he thoroughly questioned any visitor passing through. Several had told him they too had heard such things were happening, but they never saw it for themselves. Townspeople began to see less and less of the Murphys. Then one day, around dusk, Patrick was seen riding through the town on his horse at full speed. When he was asked what the hurry was and if everything was okay, Patrick only responded with, Tell them I promise to return. At the time, no one knew what to make of it. Months passed, and that April saw Lee surrender to end the war. Patrick never returned, and what's more, no one had ever seen or heard from Hannah and her son. Concerned, several of the community members beat on the door of the house, calling out their names, hoping and praying they would respond to put their fears to rest. The knocks rang hollow. No answer ever came. Eventually, the town told themselves Patrick must have returned to the night to collect his family, for how else could anyone explain their sudden disappearance? Again, the house sat empty for many years, and the town moved on. It wasn't until renovations were being done on the house almost 25 years later that a gruesome discovery was made. As the floor was being pulled off, there, laying in a small, unknown basement, were the skeletal remains of Hannah and Francis, their bodies being identified by their clothes by the few residents that remembered them. As chilling as the discovery was, it was made even more horrific when someone noticed that on the underside of the floorboard, near to where the entry was nailed shut, there were small fingernail scratches, no larger than that of a child's. It is now widely believed that Patrick must have forced his family into the basement as a way to protect them from the soldiers he was sure was going to take over the town. Why he never returned, though, 
remains a mystery. Perhaps it is Francis, whose scratchings has been heard all these years later, trying to free himself and his mother from their underground prison and tomb. And now, when you all are ready, we shall proceed to our next destination and story, which is a mere block away. By the first decade of the 20th century, the center of arts that had been originally set up almost 70 years earlier began to mature. Artists and writers, smitten by the landscape and overall remoteness of Waterford, began to use the town for lengthy getaways in order to find their muse, to create something new. No genre of writer frequented the town more than the horror writer. A few decades earlier, the precursor to what we now know as modern science was beginning to take shape. Strange studies such as the revelations into genetic tampering, the weights of the souls and the origin of man, both fascinated and terrified many writers at the time for their implications and how humans should interact with the mysteries of the world. Horror writers reacted and tried to bridge the clash between the old ways and the new science. Waterford served as a perfect spot for these new writers to escape to, to get back to the natural wonder and mystery of the world they thought they knew. One such writer was S.M. Tyndall. Across the street from where we now stand, the house that looks like it came from Nathaniel Hawthorne fever dream, was once the temporary residence of S.M. Tyndall. Though, as you will come to see, many believe he still lives there. The writer had rented the house for the summer of 1911, and he was hoping to begin what he thought was his masterpiece novel, Whispers and Echoes. With him, he brought a small trunk filled with personal effects and a journal to begin sketching out his ideas. However, things did not go as smoothly as he liked to have had. For weeks, he roamed around the town and surrounding areas, trying to work out plot lines for his novel, only to be met with writer's block. Depressed, he began to drink heavily. It was after several days of blackout drinking, he awoke one afternoon in the house to find himself dead. As he began to wake, he could see a crowd of people lining the street, and when he peered out the window, he realized it was a funeral procession heading to the cemetery. The coffin's design was very similar to the one he had chosen a few years earlier. Stepping out of the house, he called out to see who had died. No one answered. Not a soul turned around to face him or acknowledge his presence. Frantically, he wrote letters to friends and relatives explaining the situation. But to his great fear, the letters were not only not delivered, they were never picked up to be sent out. All hours, he would sit in front of the window projecting grand gestures and calling out to any passerbys, all to no avail. The pedestrians simply kept walking by. It was true, he thought. He had died. It was now tied to the house. His conclusion would be later confirmed six months later, when a new family began to move in. The writer watched all this before slipping into the walls, resigning himself to be a ghost, and set about recording the daily activities of the family in his journal, for what else had he had to do? For years this went on, and over time even the family living in the house began to suspect the house was haunted, for they began to notice objects had moved around or were missing altogether. The walls and ceiling would creak throughout the night, and sometimes during the day without any explanation. All the while the writer watched and noted their reactions to this unexplained presence. One day as the youngest daughter was clearing out a cross place for storage, the journal was found. Horrified, the family read page after page detailing their lives and the ghostly presence in the house. Unsurprisingly, the family quickly vacated the house, fearing something more sinister was happening other than creaking walls. Sadly, I have to report, the writer had not died. 
he just believed he had. The journal itself proves this, for he notes several times of having to sneak out during the night to collect food and water and other amenities to keep him warm during the winter. Yet, can we be sure? What ultimately happened to S.M. Tyndall is a mystery. His remains have never been discovered in the house, even after extensive searching. Stranger still, journal pages kept being found in the same crawlspace, detailing the lives of all who have lived there. Even to this day, pages have been reportedly found using the same paper and in the same handwriting as the original journal over a hundred years ago. If you ever step into the house and you feel as though someone is watching you, perhaps they are, and eagerly recording your presence. If you would kindly follow me to our last stop in our final story. The small cobble pot road we are currently walking down is known as Persephone Lane, another example of the town's humor. The lane leads, and always has led, to Waterford Cemetery. This is where we shall meet Andrew O'Sullivan. Originally, the cemetery was located a mile away from town, but as time moved on and the town grew, the cemetery drew closer and closer. While the town folk more or less ignored the cemetery, Andrew Sullivan did not. Many years ago, no one quite knows when, after nightfall on each religious holiday, residents of the town would see Andrew slowly walking down the main road, lantern in hand, turn on to Persephone Lane and make his way into the cemetery, where for the rest of the night he would remain, emerging shortly after daybreak. Those who lived in the town were puzzled as to why he did such a thing, but none were brave enough to ask. But each holiday they looked out their windows to watch Andrew pacing around the cemetery. Eventually, an old friend asked Andrew, after several drinks over dinner, about his odd visits to the cemetery. Andrew would explain that he is a superstitious man, and his presence in the cemetery during religious days, he thinks, eases the minds of the spirits and keeps them from becoming restless and lonely. This seemed like a decent explanation. The town let him continue his ritual, now too scared to stop him. Then, on one Christmas night, as Andrew made his trek down the lane, a visitor, who had lost control of his horse, trampled Andrew, killing him instantly. The town, of course, was saddened by the news, but a few days later at the funeral, some members of the town began to wonder who would now look after the cemetery. They all claimed such beliefs were nonsense, but secretly, many feared Andrew's service could have been beneficial. In the end, no one volunteered to keep watch of the cemetery. They needn't find one anyway. Not long after nightfall, as celebrations were beginning for the last day of Christmas, a strange light was seen hovering on Persephone Lane before vanishing, only to reappear moving about the cemetery. In their relief, they knew Andrew had returned to take up his old guard. If you ever find yourself in Waterford Cemetery on a particular night, don't be frightened if you encounter a lifeless lamp floating to and fro. The current residents of the town do not fear the light either, and it's when that light ceases to appear, that is the night they fear the most. And with that, our tour has concluded. I hope you've enjoyed yourself and found the stories entertaining. Don't forget to leave a rating on your way out to let everyone else know how much you enjoyed the tour. Tips are always appreciated as well. Again, thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you again.